This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. All right, what's up, fellas? Got another Owens Recovery Science Podcast kicking in. The whole team's here. Anyone else freaking depressed this morning? Because Texas lost. Texas, baby. We were yeah. so close. Elite eight. <laughs> so close. I thought I thought for sure Texas was going to the final four. I mean, and it was gonna be it was gonna come down to Texas and Yukon. That that's gonna be the game in the final four. It is, yeah. yeah. Yukon just champ, yeah. dominating. Yeah. I screwed I, myself. You know, I've barely been able to see a game just because of travel and everything. And so uh I was talking to my wife last night before the game. I was wearing my Texas shirt and I was like, babe, you know, it's in Houston the final four this year. So I'm going to start checking times and see if I can break away. And she's like, you might want to shut your mouth before this game. Yeah. yeah. See, <laughs> I'm on Melissa's Dude. side of this. Now I'm blaming yeah. the yeah. They're, they're right of it. I mean, tequila. I mean, getting ready. And I was all cocky. <laughs> they, they dominated until like what? Eight 30 to go. Yeah. yeah. Dude, we were, uh. yeah. and I got up this morning and uh, my shirt's just laying in the living room. I, really, I, guess I, I guess I threw it off. <laughs> <laughs> <wrote> it off. <laughs> uh, oh man! Well, anyways, it was it was a good run, man. I'm proud of the proud of the boys. So, um, everyone's back in home base. Been some travel. Kyle and I were uh, at the NFL meetings last week with PFAT, so that was good. Fifty-eight slides. Well, fifty-five. They only finished fifty-five slides in twenty minutes, baby. And then John, <laughs> Johnny got to wrap it up. <laughs> I'm surprised it wasn't more slides. I mean, well, yeah, it's like rookie. I, I freaked them out because there was like 72, but you know, a lot of them were, were blocked. And so Reggie, you know, he's the past president, so he's running it, and uh, he's like, uh, "How many slides do you have?" Because I guess the girl told him 70 something. I was like, "No, no, we're good, dude. I just have like 58." And he's like, you better roll with it, Johnny. (laughs) Uh, But the next day, I showed my final three slides to some people. So it officially counts that I got all 58 in for the the talk. But uh, we're going to go over. uh, Oh, by the way, you see all this action? All these footballs back here? Yeah. Yeah. Man, we got a lot. Z, you want this one? Falcons. Falcons. Greatest my, show on uh, turf. Yeah, I got my Tyreek Hill Super Bowl ball sign. Yeah, there you nice, go. Nice. I've already checked the eBay prices on it, so I'm keeping this. <laughs> <laughs> I got a jersey. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll share them, man. Whatever you want, Kyle. You got like four What's, over there, right? I got three. Yeah, three. I got two guys I've never heard of, which yeah. is cool. But then I got a Tua ball, which I was like, oh, yeah, that's nice. Nice. I know Tua so, is. Yeah. So is this like a, a silent auction? You guys just walk around and bid on everything, expecting people to outbid you, and you're like, "Oh shit, I got to yeah. pay for that." Yeah, <laughs> thank God, no. Baby. Yeah, we're walking <laughs> over, and they said we got something for you, and they kept giving us bags. That's and, awesome. You know, I thought we were yeah. one. They're like, "No, we got more." They gave us three bags full, but my suitcase was freaking packed to the brim. <laughs> like, I'm going to bring like six footballs home on the plane. <laughs> So uh, got rid of a ton of t-shirts and filled our bags up. So anyways, it was yeah, good yeah. time, man. Great meeting. Got to see a lot of old friends. I haven't seen them forever. So we're going nice. to be doing some cool things. Segway for that then, though, is that um, I presented what we're going to talk about today 
in part of my 58 slides, um, going over a, a new paper that came out and, and a question uh, we, we've gotten from time to time, you know, what's some extra stuff you might be able to do to add a little, a little extra juice to blood flow restriction. So a paper came out uh, about a week ago, I guess, two weeks ago. That's how I'm on my talks, dude. Paper comes out a week and boom, I've already got a slides yeah. made up. Screenshot, screenshot. Um, and so. Yeah, while well, the slide guys, guys in the back of the room going, uh, all right. <laughs> 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 shut up, shut up, Kyle. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> it's going over uh, the potential use of creatine for blood flow restriction. So this is kind of cool. Um, creatine is one of those things that seems to actually work and is safe. The efficacy seems to be there. Um, if people ask how I get so yoked, it's because I do take creatine. Um, we had uh, <laughs> Kevin Tipton, rest in peace, man, my good friend who brilliant uh, muscle protein synthesis guy who, when we asked him what's any supplement you would recommend on our podcast, he said, the only one I, I would recommend would be creatine um, besides getting your protein in. So um, it seems promising. And so um, this, this paper is pretty interesting the way they looked at how it might help with blood flow restriction. So we're going to go over kind of what creatine is and does Kyle's going to do that. There's a paper that they cited several times in this, this paper, um, by sugar from what, 2012 or something like that. And apparently Zach hit me up on Twitter with this paper when it came out and I, I didn't, uh, yeah, rain man, man, he was already on it back then. And I, I just did a, like a. I just liked it because I had no freaking clue what he was talking about. I was like, cool, man, whatever. I don't think he really... <laughs> um, but then I, this sugar paper, I, I think, is a really cool study doing blood flow restriction like an MRI uh, to see kind of what's going on. And then we'll, we'll go into the study. So, Kyle, why don't you touch base kind of on creatine? Most people know what it is, but at least a little basic background. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about creatine and describing what it is. And the first thing I thought was it's like this white powder that gives you a lot of energy. And I went, uh, okay, we're going to have to elaborate a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more than that. Um, yeah. Different powder. Um, but basically it, it, it's an ergogenic aid. So it's generally thought to just kind of um, really improve your, performance of pretty high intensity tasks, um, helps you resynthesize ATP pretty quickly. Um, uh, it's been shown. And I, and by the way, these, uh, so we will give you kind of like at the end of the podcast, I'm going to put together a, a list, like a bibliography of these papers that we kind of cover. Cause I, I figure if you guys are kind of like me, you've got a, a few different papers you're pulling from. So I want to make sure we kind of list that out, but I'm taking a lot of this information from a, a paper on funny enough on, on Rabdo on exertional rhabdomyolysis because um, interestingly enough, creatine tied to rhabdomyolysis, although inaccurately, which we'll, yeah. we'll kind of get to. Um, but basically 95% of the creatine in the human body is stored within skeletal muscle. Um, it's been shown you can increase that content by about 20% through supplementation. Um, and it acts in a number of different ways from kind of like these pre and during and post exercise enhancements. So kind of on the pre side, you see these increases in creatine and phosphocreatine and glycogen. Um, during these recovery periods, you see a faster kind of resynthesis of phosphocreatine. Um, after exercise, you see 
less inflammation, less muscle damage, potentially um, an increase in these expression of growth factors, faster post-exercise strength recovery. One that we love less protein breakdown. And you ultimately kind of see this enhanced increase in training volume, if you will. So it's thought to be able to really kind of improve muscle function in a lot of different populations. So, and so certainly as we see these things kind of like with BFR, we see them become really popular in sport and enhancing how these high performance, high performers respond to the use of the supplement or this exercise technique. These things tend to kind of make their way into clinical populations. So we're starting to see this movement into clinical populations, because if we could enhance healthy muscle, man, it sure would be awesome if we could enhance diseased muscle, if you will, or, 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 or disused muscle. Um, it's got a generally, it's got a really great safety profile on the whole, um, pretty widely used. This, this paper by Rawson went through a number of different studies, just kind of looking at different survey papers where they're gauging how many people use it. So anywhere from about eight to 74% of people in various different um, sport will use it. So like to give you some examples here, uh, Olympic caliber Finnish athletes, about 16% of them were using it in 2002. Then when they followed up in 2009, it had dropped to 8% of them using it. In contrast to that, Canadian Olympians at the Atlanta Games were using it at a rate of 14% and in Sydney at a rate of 12%. In the military, we see a pretty high use of it, so up to 29%. And then um, interestingly, like a, 90, a survey of 96 civilian health club members, 57% of them were using creatine, nearly a 40% use in division one college athletes. And uh, the highest rate of use was in 50 Australian power lifters. And that rate was 74%. So um, wow. a pretty wide and variable use in a number of different sort of areas. But generally speaking, all of those are, are healthy healthy populations. Um, there was, um, it got really tied to rhabdo, um, back in 1997. That's the kind of the first time that creatine was tied to rhabdo. There were, there were three different NCAA wrestlers that died within a two month period. Um, the official causes of those deaths were one, they just didn't know two was a hyperthermia. And then the third was rhabdo. Um, all of them had been using really intense kind of rapid weight loss techniques from, from wearing those suits to um, taking things like ephedrine and various other diuretics. Um, fascinatingly enough, like when the CDC and the FDA both commented and assessed these, these uh, wrestlers deaths, they never mentioned creatine. And in fact, the paper that's in morbidity and mortality weekly reports that was written um, on these three wrestlers, it never mentions creatine either. But for whatever reason, like the, the big media complex really kind of latched on to creatine and just totally ignored the fact that these folks were using ephedrine, which we know raises heart rate, blood pressure, um, causes you, you know, to, to sweat a lot. It can be even cardiotoxic. So so anyway, creatine kind of got tied to rhabdo back then. Then in 2010, there was another kind of rhabdo outbreak in Oregon and Iowa, which I don't, I don't remember. This paper just kind of mentions it really quickly. Um, 
And, you know, and this is kind of despite I mean, 10 years or more of research just saying creatine really looks safe. It doesn't look like it increases muscle damage, creatine kinase, any of that. Um, it's still kind of popped back up as getting tied to, to rhabdo, which is, um, you know, kind of where we have historically had creatine in our, in our risks yeah. because there's a, there's a, a, a an arthroscopy, um, case where uh, someone developed rhabdo after, <clears throat> after, uh, a surgery and we'll, but I'll give you kind of the details on that here in a second. Um, I never the, want to publish okay. a paper. I never want to put a paper in morbidity and mortality journal. I'll just put that. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't either. Um, which I mean, and, and this is the angle we always kind of come at things from is well, we want to make sure that whatever we're, we're doing is safe. Um, which was really kind of cool about this, this muscle damage paper. Cause they, they kind of go through and they're like, all right, you know, much like we kind of do with things like, okay, what's like the easiest thing. It's like, all right, well, just taking creatine and do we see any sort of changes in these resting levels of creatine kinase um, or excuse me, creatine, do we see CK increases if we're supplementing with creatine monohydrate? Um, and they did not in a number of different papers. So in, when we talk creatine monohydrate too, like, I guess you probably kind of should talk dosage and, and how you're taking. So people take it in some different ways. Um, I think that probably the most common is for people to kind of heavy dose it for about two weeks to a month, and then kind of go on a maintenance dose of five to 10 milligrams. Um, I, I was looking for, I had bookmarked a, like a recent study or review paper just on the use of creatine. Um, and it essentially kind of said, really, there's no advantage to like those sort of um, higher doses early. If you just kind of like start taking and consistently take creatine, ultimately you it just you gets in your system faster. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. I think that's the thing. That's the general It'll thought be, is that it gets well, in your it, system faster. This paper saturates. actually pushed back on that. Um, really? So that's why. So yeah. it's, it'll saturate the muscle faster. Um, and if you do your five grams, like your maintenance dose, just straight out, it takes around three basically weeks. 26 to 28 days yeah, three, four to weeks. saturate the muscle to the extent yep. that you'll get with loading. Well, and it, it seems like for the studies, they go after this loading phase, you know, the high dosage early, just so they can yeah. get there faster. Because if That's you exactly had to wait it. for four weeks, then yeah. you've got a really, you know, a longer study that you can't necessarily yeah. control. And, yeah. and I think on the performance side, it ultimately, or practicality speaking, it just depends on, you know, if you're looking at the, if you're just a gym goer, there's really no point in loading. But if you're like, if you're a track and field athlete or someone doing like explosive power type task and you're looking to compete relatively, you know, within a month to a month and a half, it might be advantageous to load. I think the practicality aspect of it. You get some GI issues potentially with the loading. But that paper, they, they didn't see a increased saturation, Kyle? If you did the load. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, um, that's kind of the most recent data that I've read is, you know, it, it doesn't really seem to give you a big advantage. You know, I, I think to Z's point, you know, maybe there is in these sort of special populations, a scenario where like a loading, you know, kind of an early loading phase might make a lot of sense. But um, as most things go, when we start talking about just the general population, it's kind of like, look, this is an advantageous supplementation 
and you should just kind of get on it and start taking it in a daily fashion. Cause you know, you know how it is. Like if you go and you crush your ass in the gym um, and then you're super sore and you're like, Oh, I don't like this. Then it's harder to kind of like get on this routine of going into the gym versus if you just kind of like gradually introduce things, sometimes the patients tend to come back a little bit more commonly, which is ultimately what we need them to do. Right. We don't have to have them at a therapeutic dose immediately. We need kind of this long-term um, adherence to Acclimate. whether it be creatine supplementation, protein ingestion, resistance exercise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. Um, and I'll hunt that. I'll hunt that review down and send it to y'all. I just know, I know I've read it and now I can't find it for, for some reason, but. I have a, I have a say or a just general question. One that hits on that. Um, yeah. I'll send it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, this, you know, kind of summing up this review paper on muscle damage, it's been looked at. We don't see resting markers of like CK go up. If you're taking creatine, we don't see increased markers of CK and loss of force reduction in those things after like high intensity eccentrics. We don't see, um, we actually see maybe an, even an improved recovery after like these long-term endurance exercise bouts and whatnot. Um, we, we don't see just an overall kind of increase in exercise induced muscle damage just from like traditional kind of resistance exercise. Um, and you know, when it comes to just general muscle function, that was one of the things, I don't know if y'all remember, but like back in kind of the early nineties, when this was becoming pretty popular, like early on, there was like this kind of idea out there that people that took creatine would get muscle cramps or these increased incidences of muscle injury, specifically in baseball. I'll never forget this because the reason I remember this is because when I was a senior in college, I did like my kind of like senior project on the use of creatine. Um, and part of the reason I did that was because the strength and conditioning coach for the Houston Astros at the time was Gene Coleman. Um, and he had done like a piece and some, um, publication i think it was actually in the houston newspaper and in some other publications on kind of the use of creatine and so i was interested because i knew i knew doc coleman pretty well um just from my uncle being with the astros and whatnot and i had gone to some strength and conditioning stuff that, that he had done as when i was a high school athlete so it was just interesting to me um so it's funny to actually kind of see this in here and basically like you know looking at hundreds of different high level athletes, anywhere from like 72 football, you know, college football players, 40 college baseball players, no increases in cramps, tightness, strains, total injuries, a, certain, a look at 130 college football players actually saw fewer muscle cramps. So we see actually really kind of positive things happening for muscle, this idea that it's kind of affecting the function in a negative ways really, really kind of a misnomer. And then, and then the big guy, the, the rhabdo, case there's six six cases uh, of rhabdo that's kind of tied to creatine in some way um five of those six cases also involved shocker unaccustomed very intense exercise um <clears throat> four of the people that were involved in those actually returned to full function one um had kind of some partial partial muscle function and then one actually died um we know that at least four of the, these are all males. Um, they were youngish males. We know four of them were taking ephedrine again. 
So here we see that kind of pop up. Um, they were, many of them were dehydrated and dehydrated. also on some herbal diuretics. So, um, you know, all of these things having extra explanations as to why these, these folks probably had the issues that they did. Um, and then of course the last subject there was the, the college football player and bodybuilder who got rhabdo after the tourniquet use. Um, but he, the reason for that tourniquet use was he had had a crush um, injury to the lower extremity after hitting a tree while skiing um, was also taking NSAIDs. And then um, um, the tourniquet, the interestingly, the tourniquet use, like when you read that chef paper, they say at 90 minutes, the nurse notified the physician that they had reached 90 minutes. And then every 10 minutes after that, and the total total tourniquet time in that study was 155 minutes. Wow. So not only do you have this scenario where you have a crush phenomenon, this person's static lying in bed, and then you have 155 minutes of full occlusion on the limb. So uh, you have just a lot of different sort of things that likely led to that, that individual after Better tourniquet work. use. Everyone's like, it's creatine. Yeah, it was creatine. Yeah, it's wild (laughs) that, you know, people pointed to the fact that he was on some loading doses of creatine. So, and then then finally, just kind of summing up creatine, we're starting to see it sort of make its way into potentially medical rehab um, and, um, you know, various different types of scenarios where typically it looks like maybe we could help people that have disused muscle. Um, and, and I think, you know, kind of supporting where we kind of come at muscle from, um, there's this paper that have these big kind of hitters on it from Per Argard to Caroline Sueta and Michael Kajire, where they showed this increase in satellite cell and myonuclei. The, the only issue that I have with this paper is man, it's a really small sample. It's eight subjects in each group. And the weird, and the the part of the reason I have issue with this paper is there's a weirdness here. So like the creatine combined with strength training group saw these early increases, like we just talked about in myogenic stem cells and, and, and my nuclei. So at four, at week four and week eight, but then at week 16, their MSCs were down. Um, and kind of back to not quite baseline, but they, they dropped there. So, uh, and I think that's just a function of the sample size more than anything. I'm guessing there's probably just some sort of weirdness in there who may, who knows, maybe like an error in measurement. Um, so I, you know, I, this is a, it's a great lab, of course. Um, it's just, why the heck did you see that go down at that 16 week mark? It doesn't really, it doesn't really make sense that they didn't at least just kind of maintain the increase that they, had gotten. So, um, not saying it's not a thing, just saying, ah, we just kind of think, I think we need more data to kind of help us better understand that. Cause I mean, you're talking eight subjects. So, well, they're doing biopsies, so you never get big trials with that. Yeah. You're you're kind of stuck in small land, but maybe it was a detraining effect or something. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, they were training the whole time. Um, Mm -hmm. it was a 16, so they trained for three times a week. Um, for 16 weeks in that study. So yeah, hard, hard to say. It was, I was just looking at that I'm going, it's kind of weird that you yeah. see that. Okay. Have you ever recommended creatine to a patient? I haven't. Is that even, is I that don't legal? know why I haven't, to be honest with yeah. you. Probably just so, I didn't know it. So 
so here, here's the interesting thing, just like Kyle was saying, I'm familiar with there's one ACL trial that's out there. Didn't show an effect, but I think there was issues with the loading program with that um, when because they reported data basically out to six months. And when you look at the strength um, changes or where the individual was at, at, at six months, you're, they were around, I think it's like 1.6 or 1.5 newton meter per kilogram, which is pretty off at six yeah, months yeah. you're yeah. way behind so good. you just wonder if they were even being pushed during rehab to to have taken advantage because that's the other thing with creatine yeah. it's kind of like i don't want this to come across as it's kind of like an anabolic steroid but in the sense of you still have to train like you mm -hmm. just can't take steroids and think you're going to turn into ronnie coleman it's not going to happen like you're not going to take creatine and then turn into some you're not going to have this extremely muscled kind of response. I mean, that's kind of the deal. Yeah, I really um, thought you were going to say it's kind of like what we hear claimed about the systemic effects of BFR exercise. There's that. Well, you, well, I mean, you I, that's can't another, just like magically do that. That is another perfect analogy <laughs> for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. You you can't simply just do bicep curls and think you're going to get a larger quad. It's yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> um, and, uh, amazingly enough, you still actually have to. But exercise. I saw. I saw a very famous PT on Instagram say you could. Zach. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of claims out there, oh, uh, okay. but the, um, and, and we can tag this in like the show notes in the bibliography deal. Um, there's a, a study out of 2001 uh, actually in the journal of physiology as well, which is pretty, pretty decent journal. Um, yeah. Oral creatine supplementation facilitates the rehabilitation of disuse atrophy and alters the expression of muscle myogenic mm. factors in humans. Um, and this was basically an immobilization study, very similar to what we see with the effects of disuse just on muscle and muscle atrophies and whatnot. And so what they did was they took um, a, a loading phase of creatine and then maintained that um, into a rehab period. Um, and so then they, they took uh, before and after immobilization and then at three and 10 weeks, uh, cross-sectional area measurements were taken. Um, and then they took strength measurements as well. And then they took biopsies to look at myogenic factors, such as myogen and myOD, um, to look to see if there was an impact there with creatine. And basically the gist with creatine was um, it maintained the stores of phosphocreatine in the muscle through the disuse period. And then you have a, um, a faster reacquisition of muscle mass and strength through um, the rehab period. And so I, I think the thing with that, you know, is you take someone who is getting like an ACL surgery or something like that, or meniscus repair, a hip scope, you know, what have you, um, I think it's going to be pretty advantageous to, to do this um, and, and advocate the use of creatine. Uh, at, at the very least, what I would say is what harm is there? You know, yeah. you always weigh the risk reward. And, and if there's minimal to no risk and there's only the potential for an upside and, and the fact nowadays, like creatine super cheap, um, you get a tub of creatine for like 15, 20 bucks. And, um, you know, it, well, it, it's it, got it, more expensive recently. You know, apparently some some TikTokers put it out there that creatine is good for you. So you couldn't yeah. find it for a little while. Creatine monohydrate was a hard thing to yeah. come by. And now it's it's doubled in price. But it's still like, you know, a tub that'll last you a couple <laughs> months is 30 bucks. You know, yeah. So. And, and so, you know, with that, you know, I just 
I tell people, hey, man, you know, this this is, you know, what I would do if we're talking about the importance of muscle and the reacquisition of muscle mass and strength and, and the best way to do it. This this potentially looks like it's going to be an upside for us. Yeah, I think an important piece to where you're saying, Zach, is um, what's the harm? Like, we don't actually have great data to say, hey, in an ACL population, get going on this. Because unfortunately, with an immobilization trial, you know when you're going to implement this immobilization and you can kind of prep that muscle ahead of time. Like it sounds like they did with an ACL yeah. injury with the there, total there knee. No, there's no prep. You can't they, do that. They started immobilization and then they started, it was two weeks of immobilization and they started the loading phase with creatine right then. Right then. Okay. See, yeah. I, I sounded like you said they started pre, which is kind of my, you know, my issue there. I'm like, well, you don't know when an ACL injury is going to happen, you know? So that's actually cool if they started it like at the same time, because in theory you could just say, Hey man, like make sure you start yeah. taking this, this stuff now. So that's an important, still talking injury versus healthy, but, um, but that definitely kind of helps the, the profile a little bit more from my yeah. perspective. Yeah. But mechanistically, so we'll roll into the sugar paper. Um, can you touch base kind of, of how phosphocreatine, what it, what it does to kind of replenish ATP or like, you know, I get it. This, this helps muscle, yada, 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 but, but the actual pathway, you guys have yeah, a grasp so, on that. So ultimately you basically have, you know, everyone's pretty familiar with your different energy systems that, that you use to generate ATP. Um, you know, we're pretty familiar to talk about on the BFR side of things, basically glycolysis or this lactate type system where we generate a short amount of ATP and it can sustain us over a period of time. You know, it's going to fluctuate a little bit, but you're looking somewhere in the ballpark of maybe like 20 seconds or so we can generate enough energy. And then ultimately we have to kind of kick in other um, energy processes going into mitochondria, fat oxidation, things like that. Well, before you get into glycolysis, you have what's called the A-lactate system. And within that A-lactate system, you're really looking at very, very short bursts uh, of energy or fuel that can be used, and it's stored immediately within the muscle. Um, and so that's going to be your phosphocreatine or glycogen specifically. Um, the whole premise, like Kyle mentioned with creatine, is you basically add phosphocreatine to the muscle. And so how it does this is when you consume a creatine drink or, you know, your, your creatine supplement, you use creatine kinase then ultimately to transition that into the muscle and stores that into the muscle in the form of phosphocreatine. So you look at it in the context of topping the muscle off um, uh, and, and maximizing that store. And so very similarly, just like Kyle was mentioning, ultimately what this does is it gives us an added fuel source um, for very short um, uh, periods of time for exercise. That could be a 40 yard sprint. It could be a hundred meter sprint. It could be jumping activities, things that are just very explosive that require a very short duration. And then in the, in the context of athletics or weight training, it allows us to replenish those stores. And so uh, ideally you're able to train um, at, at a higher intensity um, and increase your workload. And so um, what the ultimately the sugar paper looked at was they took 12 individuals, they had them serve as their own control 
doing a plantar flexor, plantar flexion exercise. And then they had um, under four different conditions, a low load condition, which was at 20% one RM and then two BFR conditions that were both at, they were both at the low load of 20% one RM. The difference between groups there was one had an intermittent pressure applied. And so that was uh, the, the pressure was only applied during the exercise and released um, in, during the rest periods. Then they had a continuous BFR group where the pressure was applied basically from the start of the exercise until the, the completion of the exercise. It, the duration was roughly around five minutes of cuff inflation in that group. Um, and then they had a, what they called a high load group, which was at 65% 1RM. Um, the set rep scheme was three sets of 30 um, with one minute rest in between. So be pretty miserable on the continuous BFR side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they had, um, now they did base the pressure off of brachial systolic blood pressure, but I would say that they were pretty close to an 80% mark. Uh, they use an 18 and a half centimeter cuff with a, with an average pressure of 144. So yeah. Pretty, pretty wide cuff. And that's a pretty, you know, pretty decent pressure. Um, then what they did specifically, they were looking at um, uh, kind of, um, uh, lactate hydrogen production, and they were measuring, monitoring that via pH levels within the blood. And then um, they looked at, they took a proton magnetic resonance um, spectrom uh, spectro spectroscopy image um, to look at basically the peak splitting rate of phosphate. And so what that, what that type of MR does is it just looks at energy utilization. Um, what they basically showed was pH decreased um, across BFR groups and the high load group didn't change in a low load group. However, the high load group and the uh, continuous BFR group had the similar, um, a similar drop in pH, which was significantly um, greater drop than what you got out of the intermittent cuff um, situation. So basically maintaining that did not allow the replenishment or the removal of hydrogen ions, lactate, um, out of that exercising muscle during the rest period. Um, what they found, the peak splitting rate of phosphate was the greatest in the continuous BFR group and the high load group. So um, what we kind of conclude from um, that is ultimately we have tapped into these higher threshold motor units um, that really kind of are active when we do high load explosive type task. And then... Um, when you yeah, and could, intermittent and low load didn't really do anything at all for peak splitting. No significant rise. I mean, they, they look very similar. Right. And, yeah. and then when you look at the utilization or the depletion of phosphocreatine levels, the continuous BFR group and the high load group demonstrated the greatest um, changes in phosphocreatine. Um, so again, whether you're looking at basically ATP going to ADP, that, that peak splitting rate of phosphate, we see the greatest change within continuous BFR and then um, the high load situation. And then when you look at fuel utilization in the muscle, you see the same exact kind of correlation, so to speak, of um, greatest depletion of phosphocreatine comes with continuous BFR and then the high load situation. Yeah. And that continuous BFR graph is crazy because it just... My joke, it looked like the stock market recently. It, it crushed it at the at the NFL meetings. Um, that thing just no, it didn't call. No. <laughs> I think they, they were tired. I think everyone was tired, man. Um, 
that graph, it just bottoms out for the continuous BFR. You see that phosphocreatine just like gone, gone by the end. It's, it's just like gone. Yeah. So then you and see, okay, if there is more topped off phosphocreatine in the system, you might be able to utilize that with continuous BFR. Yeah. And then there, there was a, another paper from the eighties that showed a similar, you know, effect and basically what that group did, it was Ingman Hansen and they looked at, they did a correlation between lactate levels and glycogen and phosphocreatine within a muscle. And that was measured with the muscle biopsy. Um, and ultimately there was a sh very strong inverse relationship. I think it was a 0.88 relationship uh, between high levels of lactate and then the depletion of phosphocreatine and glycogen. So um, it, it kind of tracks that, uh, you know, when we so increase these um, glycolytic substrates, you know, we're using another fuel source. Um, so it's the accumulation of lactate that makes you keep running out of the phosphocreatine. It's not that it's some sort of hypoxic thing. Where, you know, if you release it during the rest period in intermittent group, it's like, okay, it goes right back up to baseline almost. But yeah. if you were still in hypoxia, that's what I was trying to figure out. Is this hypoxia so, that's doing it or is it just you, the lactate never left? So I think the big thing with BFR research is we always use lactate as what we measure. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily know if lactate drives the effect or that's just what is measured. And then is it the, is the accumulation of lactate, the result of the hypoxia. And then from there, because you're not moving in to your, the mitochondria and getting oxidative phosphorylation, things like that, that ultimately you have to use another fuel source. And so the, the thought process is ultimately you're tapping into higher threshold motor units. So we basically starved out oxygen. Um, we burn through that, say within the first set. Well, now we're start getting to, we start to get into type two fibers. And then ultimately we go from type two to type two A to type two X, or you know, those those very high threshold motor unit fibers, which are using um, you know, phosphocreatine as the fuel source. Okay. Very cool paper. It's a cool setup then for. Well, it makes you understand, all right, phosphocreatine is important. If I have a bunch in my muscle, can I eke out some extra work potentially, right? Would be the goal and recover, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Anything else you want to add on that sugar paper or roll into this creatine study then? Um, I think that's pretty much about that, that covers that paper. You, 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 you did it well without confusing me. I was going to say, explain this paper. Zach, like I am a cocker spaniel, um, trying to understand it. So you didn't go too rain man on us. All right, Ben, do you want to go into the you creative report? Yeah, save save the best for last. Um, not really. So, uh, oh, yeah. you don't just figure you put me toward the end of the podcast. People yeah, won't be paying attention at this what point. We'll, that's yeah. what we'll go with. Okay. All right. Well, uh, so this Susa Susa Silva paper uh, that just came out on creatine versus no creatine, essentially it was split into two groups and four conditions. You've got a placebo controlled trial. So you've got one group getting creatine, the other group getting a placebo. Um, wasn't a ton of people in this study. You know, they started with like 12 in each group, but they had some dropouts. So it ended up with eight folks in the creatine group and nine folks in the placebo group. Um, as far as the training that they did, they had um, individuals essentially 
working as a within subject comparison. So you had each person training each of their arms differently for a bicep curl exercise. One arm was doing a 70% of one rep max load. The other arm was doing a 30% of one rep max with blood flow restriction. And so with that, you had the <coughs> separation. Everyone's training the same way. Half of them were getting creatine. The other group was getting the placebo. And so they trained twice a week for eight weeks um, for the actual creatine use. They did follow a loading schedule for the first five days. They got 20 grams of creatine monohydrate for the first five days. And then beyond that, they were on that maintenance dose of five grams of creatine monohydrate. And they basically split up this training into a Monday, Thursday, and a Tuesday, Friday. So that way the arms weren't training on the same training day and they were separated by a few days between each lift. And for weeks one through four, the BFR group at 30% load did 30, 15, 15. So three sets. The heavy load group did three sets of 10 to 12 reps. That was their target for hitting failure was somewhere between 10 and 12 reps in each set. And then for weeks five through eight, <clears throat> they had reassessed their one rep max and increased if needed. And they added an extra set in both groups. So it became the 30, 15, 15, 15 in the BFR group. And for traditional, it was four sets of 10 to 12. So it was nice that they assessed rep max loaded based on that. They reassessed and progressed and they added volume as opposed to adding a percent load. So they did have some progression there and everyone was doing a four second time under tension, two up, two down. So they looked at total body mass. They looked at fat free mass. They looked for hypertrophy in the bicep using an ultrasound. They looked at changes in volume of training or the number of sets they could complete in training. Uh, and then they also looked at um, kind of a, a multi-rep set or reps to failure at 70% load and 30% load. So what they found was only the creatine group had an increase in total body mass. So what, you know, can't really split up the conditions because you're training both limbs differently. Um, the creatine group had an increase in fat-free mass. Only the arms that lifted heavy had a significant increase in one rep max. Uh, but otherwise, everyone had improvements in reps to failure at 70% of one rep max and 30% of one rep max. But the creatine and BFR condition had the most significant increase at 30% one rep max with reps to failure. That was the only significant difference in those. Um, and then otherwise, the overall volume of training seemed to be increased in the creatine groups, uh, but the most significant increase was the, or the most significant difference between groups was creatine and BFR. So the, the difference in traditional training was not all that significant as far as the total volume they could complete per session. Uh, but with BFR, if you add some creatine, the total volume of training completed seemed to go up. So that was... One of the major takeaways is it looks like the addition of creatine seems to, you know, improve your total volume of training, especially if you're doing BFR and low load. Um, seemed to be some specificity of training showing up here, you know, as far as only lifting heavy made you better at lifting really heavy and doing a one rep max. 
Um, and I was kind of surprised that there wasn't a difference at the 70% rep max mm -hmm. to failure. So BFR did as good as training at that workload as far as rep to failure. And the low load training did better at testing low load to failure in both, you know, BFR conditions, but better with creatine. Um, and then other than that, I mean, the, there wasn't really that much to this that was that significantly different. So, um, to me, it looks like it's beneficial to add some creatine and, you know, if we're doing low load, um, and have somebody in rehab. I don't know, like we said before, why you wouldn't at this point, if you can increase the potential for their total volume of training and, you know, no major yeah. downsides. Yeah. They got the amount of work that last graph that showed that was, I think the kind of like key graph, you just see the, the BFR without creatine versus the difference with creatine that, that volume of work was, it, it seemed like it was a pretty, pretty nice difference. Um, mm -hmm. And that volume of work, like you said, was very similar to lifting heavy. Mm -hmm. There was no difference between those groups, right? Lifting heavy versus lifting and heavy, or lifting light with creatine with BFR for volume. As far for volume, no. Yeah, yeah. At five and eight, they were the same. Week so that's and, and that's the thing. That's the goal. If you can eke out more work, you're you're probably gonna get rewarded for that. Mm -hmm. So, right. well. There were some things that I thought were were pretty interesting on this as far as, um, you know, when they talked about the BFR group, you know, they targeted this 30, 15, 15, but when they describe it a little later on in their methods or in the results, I couldn't remember which section they said for BFR sets were performed to failure and to failure. subjects failed at every set, which that, seems that to was, be how all of it was done. It was mm -hmm. all, everything in every group went to failure. You know, I just went with the failure piece because it doesn't make sense yeah. to get that volume of work. So I, I was like, oh, they just screwed that, that was up the bullet. Yeah, that was I the love thing this. that was real confusing in the methods. They said they got to failure in every set at 30, <laughs> and then, but it was structured at yeah, 30, well, two to three sets of 15, and then the, the sets of 10 to 12. And But then when you look at that volume graph, which – I, I thought, I mean, visually, like looking at the lines, you can see it, but dude, there's way too many letters and symbols. I mean, <laughs> we went ABC, dollar sign, dollar sign hashtag, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I'm just like, shimmy, Christmas. And then well, like, it's a preprint. So you got to scroll back up to see like we mm -hmm. need each one of these things mean. Yeah. yeah. And, but well, if, if you look at, or if you just do the math, cause this is the part that didn't make sense to me when they talk about the volume, you know, so basically that high load group within the first four weeks would have roughly 30, 34% more volume than what the BFR group did. If you did a set of 30, two sets of 15, and then weeks, um, you know, five through eight, it jumps up to almost a 40% more volume in the high load group. And so it's like you said, you know, is it specificity of training or, like I don't know because it's confusing when you yeah. do the math, the volume doesn't add up to what the graph shows. Right. And well, so this, yeah. I mean, and I don't know if it's because it's a preprint, but you know, looking at the methods, you know, they're describing, you know, one of the details that I didn't include, which was that they did measure arterial occlusion pressure. They applied 50% mm -hmm. arterial occlusion in the BFR group, but it sounds like they only measured it at the beginning 
And when they were going to give a description of how they just said, well, look at this other paper. They told us, you know, they tell you how we did it. Mm-hmm. So they, they did the same thing for their one rep max testing. It's like, well, this paper, we, we did what they did. And, yeah. you know, we're not actually going to describe it for you here. Well, but and they I, dog out the other BFR with creatine paper that they, they're like, well, but they were only hitting 30% LOP. So that yeah. was their problem. So it's like, okay, you might want to focus on this LOP then. If you're saying that <laughs> this is a rate limiting well, factor, then it's like, yeah, we just, yeah, whatever. yeah. look at other papers that we did it. We did it once. So. Yeah, and I wish I wish we knew this, you know, training to failure piece, you know, and, and if it is what I think they're saying it is, you know, it, it's something that I've always wondered about a lot of these BFR papers where they're saying, okay, well, we did, you know, this percent rep max and this load is, or, you know, this, you know, number of sets and reps, you know, we targeted 30, 15, 15, 15 at 30% of one rep max. And if anyone's ever actually tried that at a true 30% of their one rep max, I've, I don't see many people able to even come close to completing that volume of repetition. So, yeah. you know, it, it might actually be nice if they're saying, well, yeah, we were trying to do 30, 15, 15, but everyone freaking died before they got there. So we didn't yeah. actually complete those sets or the, that volume of repetition. So that. Um, I've always wondered that about a lot of papers. And so maybe that's where we're getting some, you know, equated effect by saying, well, every set went to failure. So maybe that's getting us closer to where we need to be as as opposed to just saying it's a volume. Generally speaking, these papers do a pretty poor job of defining failure in general. I mean, and it's pretty pretty crazy enough. It can be kind of broad. Yeah. Um, I wanted to back up because Zach kind of mentioned the, specificity of training piece that, that Ben had also mentioned. And, and I really took the the specificity of training actually to really more so apply to the assessment of one rep max than anything. But yeah. yep. is totally. that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because I feel like that's what we have seen a few different times now. If, if you're going to have a group train heavy and then you're going to measure their increases in strength with a one rep max, you're going to see the training heavy groups strength outcome outperform BFR. But then if you go and you measure them with a true like force output on an isokinetic dynamometer or or some kind of validated way of measuring force, that's where we tend to see the strength outcomes really sort of approach one another Um, because now we don't have a familiarity piece there. Well, that's mm-hmm. what the, that powerlifting that, paper is the perfect and, example. And the, yeah. the Gronfeld paper that we use yeah. to talk about the effects. Well, and that's, yeah, that's that shown it a couple is, different times. I mean, a, a number of different papers have, right. have, have shown that for sure. So well, I think that's where the meta-analysis that Paragard did with BFR versus lift and heavy, mm-hmm. you know, he basically yeah. was saying like, yeah, you, you can't just be taking these one RMs because it's, that's not the way, you know, that these, these people are training for the test. So mm-hmm. they, they threw that out and said, okay, the ones that use actual an isometric or an isokinetic is, is going to give you that kind of true stream. Yeah. Good point. Well, a few flaws. It's a preprint. It was a pretty international collaboration of people on that paper. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it's yeah. interesting. So it at least gives us some insight that there's a mechanistic reason why this might be beneficial and then when you do apply it, it did seem to move the needle. So um, we went from creatine is a rhabdo producer to actual 
creatine does not look like it's that. And it looks like it could be beneficial if, it, if you're open to taking it as part of your BFR training. Mm -hmm. You guys agree? Yeah. yeah. And we left out what might be the best part of the recent developments in creatine, which is cognitive, the, yeah. the new suggestions that it might improve cognition, which I, I haven't really found that in myself yet, but you're not taking a high enough dose. <laughs> Apparently that's, yeah, that's, man, I'm, that's I'm high dose stuff, there. man. You're, you're dude. You're like, it's gotta be 15 grams, man, dude. It's, it's, it's okay. super high. Uh, yeah. There's, all, there's always a, there's always a non-responder. It's kind of like in this paper, you know, they, they took the, the one person that they said, well, this person's too skinny. So we're going to exclude yeah. them from our data. You know, that's the um, funny so part. I read that and I'm like, you didn't realize when you enrolled this person in yeah. underweight. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, gosh. You didn't hey, realize I, that until the, 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 the post analysis. Yeah. Well, we'll put you through the workout, but uh, yeah, thanks for coming out. We're not actually going to include you in the study. Yeah. You're, you're a little too small for us. Here's a, here's a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Start we, eating. <laughs> We did say a few times this is a preprint. So I wanted to just kind of make sure that we sort of disclose like what that actually means here. I mean, preprints, they can take a few different forms, you know, like sometimes in order to submit a manuscript, you have to actually publish a preprint ahead of time. Um, I, I think this one is different though, because it's actually been accepted for publication. It's just the paper that you can actually download is not in the format that it will ultimately be in the journal. And there may certainly be some other edits for, for content that could happen after that. Anything you it's guys- It's a preprint, but you typically have gotten your proofs. So you've already said, yes, I'm, I'm happy yeah. with this. But I had a preprint come right. out one time with a, a paper and we still had the comments they put out there on it. It's yeah. Like, thank God it wasn't like- Fucking reviewer number three. Can you believe this guy? <laughs> right. Well, that was like when um, Nick and I submitted this paper that we have coming out here at any day. Um, we actually, the first time we submitted it to a different journal, we actually had to submit the, we had to post a preprint and get a DOI for it and everything in order to submit it for publication. So it was before that journal had even looked at it. Um so uh, there's just a lot of different ways that these kind of, and sometimes you'll get a preprint that's not published at all. Like Eric Meta has one of those where he had a paper that's it's really good. <coughs> He's been trying to get it accepted in a number of different journals and they're just like, nah, pound sand. And so he just basically kind of put it out there. So it's at least out there because once it's out there as a preprint, then people can find it and they can comment on it and they can, they can do other things. So it's just important. I think that we kind of, or like we, this paper is going to be published. It's just what we have access to right now um, is not the final kind of formatting that you will see. So, cool, man. Everybody gonna go get your creatine in. Yeah, yeah, man. All right, and some more coffee. Cog cognitive baby, cognitive. Where I'm going <laughs> yeah. for. All right, any parting shots? I think that was a good breakdown, fellas. Appreciate it. Yeah. All good right, y'all. All right. Good seeing you. Talk soon. I'm going to go cry in my, my coffee still about not being in the final four. I'm going for that Florida Atlantic team now, the owls, whatever.
Yeah, let's just, I mean, I, I just hope it's absolute chaos and, you know, yeah, you get some. It already is. Night. It has been chaos for sure. Yeah. My 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 office pool that I that I run for my, my old job, um, we, for the first time, will potentially have a winner that did not pick the eventual champion of the tournament. Um, and we only have two people that even picked one of the final four teams. In the whole, and that's thirty brats. Well, that's, that's even good, man. <laughs> that's, that's wild, that's impressive. Yeah. All right, fellas, appreciate it. Talk soon. Yep. Peace. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com. One last thing before we get out of here. First, want to say a sincere thank you for listening all the way through. But also wanted to remind you that this podcast should not be considered medical advice. It is strictly entertainment. It's a way for us to try to keep up with what is ongoing within the BFR world. If you require some sort of medical attention, medical advice, please seek that from a licensed individual within your state. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon.